Hello there and welcome along to Planet Sport Football Africa, a passion for sport production where we look at African football, what's happening around the continent and what African players are doing overseas. I'm Steve Vickers in Harare, Zimbabwe, joined by Ida Waringa in Nairobi, Kenya and by Stuart Weir in the UK. And on this week's show, we have an interview with Nigeria defender Leon Balogun. He's on loan at English Championship side Wigan from Premier League club Brighton until the end of the season. Balogun talks about the disappointment of failing to get a regular starting place with Brighton. Uh, not easy, but I think you have to manage because that's part of the game or can be part of the game. So you have to try to adjust and then um, yeah, try to make the most out of the time you get. And Balogun also talks about racism in Germany, where he grew up. And on the same theme, we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, as footballers have spoken out about the death of George Floyd in the USA. But let's start with Nigeria striker Odion Igalo, as we've been following his spell at Manchester United a lot on the show, and he's extended his loan deal at United until January 2021. Igalo joined United this January from Chinese Super League side Shanghai Shenhua, initially until the 31st of May. Now, there is no option for United to buy Igalo, but his dream of playing for them will continue, and he turned down a massive pay increase from Shanghai Shenhua to stay at United. Well, Ida, what do Man United fans think there in Kenya? Well, honestly, Steve, and I know we touched on this initially when Igalo signed for United, but a lot of people on this side were shocked and, you know, even skeptical of the fact that United had clearly uh, put a great deal of trust in him. But look, after four goals in eight appearances, not forgetting that three of those were stats, including that stunner, Steve, in the Europa League, um, it's safe to say <laughs> that he has proven a lot of people wrong and maybe, just maybe, even united themselves. I mean, there were unconfirmed rumors that he was third or maybe even fourth in the pecking order of uh, strikers that they initially were going for. But now look, they've extended his contract, clearly meaning he's doing something right. And um, even fellow teammates have come out in support of the extension, the likes of Luke Shaw, saying that Igalo has brought in a totally different style of play. So initially when the Nigerian was uh, signed to United, it's because the Red Devils were at a bad place, you know, with the likes of uh, Rashford and his nagging back injury that's since healed. He's fully fit now. And uh, in as much as there has been no buyout clause on Igalu's deal, this has also hopefully been a chance and a good opportunity that some other top leagues will now be interested in him. I mean, he's still at a relatively decent age. And Steve, while the advantage to playing in China has always been the money, the downside is that it's very easy to be forgotten. So, I mean, a top four finish and... Who knows, maybe even an FA Cup for United. I mean, of the four goals that Igalo scored, two were in the FA Cup. That would certainly push him further up the African records. Well, Igalo's been very determined to stay at United. Let's hope that things go well for the rest of this loan spell for him. Well, it's been a turbulent few days in global news with the violence in cities across the USA, with protests sparked by the death in police custody of African-American George Floyd. Some footballers have had their say on this. The Liverpool, Chelsea and Newcastle squads took the knee before training this week 
Uh, taking the knee, the protest started by American football star Colin Kaepernick, who knelt during the national anthem before a match to protest against police brutality back in 2016. And the Kaepernick never got another playing contract after that protest. Well, many players have spoken out about the death of George Floyd, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Morocco's Atraf Hakimi and England forward Jaden Sancho were booked for unveiling Justice for George Floyd t-shirts while playing for Borussia Dortmund last Sunday. Now, FIFA doesn't allow messages of a political nature, but FIFA president Gianni Infantino commented on these cases, as saying that for the avoidance of doubt, the demonstrations of the players in the Bundesliga matches would deserve applause rather than punishment. Now, Schalke's Weston McKinney wore a Justice for George Floyd armband and Marcus Turam of Borussia Mönchengladbach knelt in tribute to Floyd after scoring. In a statement, the German Football Association said that no proceedings would take place against the four players because of their solidarity and anti-racism statements. The British anti-racism organisation Kick It Out says that footballers should feel free to protest over the death of George Floyd and should take a knee, saying it's a fundamental human right to express your beliefs. Um, what do you make of this, Ida? I agree because sports people are human beings first, Steve, before they are athletes. And, uh, they're not just machines that switch on at the, at the pitch, let's say, or at the court or at the track even, and then switch off immediately after because what's going on ultimately affects their lives. So I am all for athletes using their platforms to call out social injustice. And it's rather double-sided of FIFA, if I should say, because in all honesty, they have never really done anything solid in terms of action against racism, you know, other than the occasional social media hashtag, you know. So kudos to the players in the Bundesliga who actually stood up for what's right, including the likes of uh, BBB's Sancho and Hakimi, Monk and Gladbach's Turam, and uh, McKenney of Schalke. Now, Marcus Turam's father, Lillian Turam, who, of course, is a World Cup winner with France, well, he's now in the anti-racism movement campaign. So that must have been sentimental on so many levels for the younger Turam. So I'm happy that FIFA read the room, so to speak, Steve, and just read the general mood that the world is in. It was important that they advocated for leniency in terms of the possible punishment of some of these players. Yes, thanks, Ida. And uh, as the Passion for Sport team, we believe that we are all made in the image of God, as the Bible says, and we look to the true unity that's found in Jesus. In the Bible, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 3, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free nor is the male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And we do hope and pray that the racism that has blighted the USA and elsewhere will be eradicated. Well, next here on Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport, to our interview with Nigeria defender Leon Balogun. And racism is one of the things that he talks about here. Now, Balogun is on loan at English championship side Wigan Athletic from Premier League club Brighton until the end of the season. 
Born to a German mother and a Nigerian father, Balogun left Germany for the Premier League in 2018, but his first season in England saw him make just eight appearances and he scored once for the Seagulls. The centre-back pairing of Lewis Dunk and Shane Duffy was solid and Balogun hardly got a chance. Now, under new manager Graham Potter, he didn't play at all for Brighton in the first half of this season in the league, making one FA Cup appearance. And he was then loaned to Wigan for the rest of the season and had already played six matches before the pandemic halted football. Well, Balogun spoke to Planet Sport Football Africa's Oloashina Okeleji first about his difficult first season with Brighton. Uh, not easy, but I think you have to manage because that's part of the game or can be part of the game, so you have to try to adjust and then, um, yeah, try to make the most out of the time you get. And I think I've done that over the majority part of the games that I played. You train every um, every day, knowing that you could get a chance to play in the Premier League and all that. Then you scored that lovely goal. People expected to see you playing regularly. Was it a matter of um, the club uh, having a settled backline, or is just a matter of you know what, just a um, gaffer's choice? Uh, I think mainly it's <clears throat> it's uh, option A, but then also it's I mean, which basically is the gaffer's choice. But I think he just preferred that settled do that he had. Um, and stated that at one point quite clearly as well. I mean, it's it's a clear statement. If he plays them week in, week out, and you get your chances in between for three or four games, you do well. He tells you that you've done well, and then still you find yourself back on the bench. But um, for me, the most important thing uh, was always that there's like a respectful way uh, to feed me that info, and he's always done that, so I wouldn't blame him. And then you mentioned the goal. And that people's expectations, well, people, I need you to wake up because this is football. Um, and a lot of things, they don't go as you would expect them to go. So, um, Leon, um, you're one of those African footballers who have been very vocal about racism in football. And some um, German publications that we've read, um, <coughs> when, when it was you and Kevin Prince Boateng talking, people said, these are two people who understand racism because they grew up in Berlin. What does that really mean? I think you have to ask those people what it means because they made their statement. I wouldn't I, I would say every every person that has faced racism understands what racism is. Um and then I think there's levels to it, deep levels and I mean it's it all comes down to the way it has affected you in what way? Was it subtle? Was it like did it come and dismantled as maybe mobbing or something, but mobbing in a racist way? I mean, I'm telling you, m- mobbing victims or people who get discriminated for other reasons, they will understand racism as well because it's basically the same thing, only that racism is just it's complex. I can't ex- I can't explain, but it's a form of of discrimination and probably the worst kind. So, um, what exactly those people meant, I can't tell you, but I can confirm that I understand racism. That's true. What was it like growing up um, in, your, in your environment, though, growing up as a mixed-race um, African in Europe? What was it like? I don't know. For me, that's the thing. People, A lot of people make differences. I don't make too much of a difference. If I look back at it, I mean, I did not... I'm very fair. So most, like, friends of mine, they, they faced bigger problems than I did, but... You can feel that people will always look at you, or a lot of times they look at you different, they treat you different because they see you look different, you don't look German in my case. So they're like, hmm. Then 
there were maybe people or there always are people from different countries, not Germans, who cause trouble. Um, and then I think it's also a way of the media depicting it. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of statistics. It's in the US, you have it in Germany, you have it in France, everywhere. They, they always point out the, the, the migrants, the foreigners, the non, the non-Germans, the non, non-French people, the non-Americans point them out for their wrongdoings, for their, um, crimes. But then if you see some statistics, you see actually that their own people do way more crimes of the same nature than, than these people. So, um, yeah, I can't, I can't really tell you. My, I had a pretty, ch- yeah, cool and relaxed childhood. It was nice growing up. Then I had these incidents every now and then something happened. But then again, I think friends of mine, they got hit much worse than I did. But apart from that, I think I've grown up pretty well. My parents always looked after me, had great friends, was in a good school, got my education, made my dream come true of becoming a professional footballer. So I wouldn't complain, really. (laughs) Of course, you can complain. I mean, you got an opportunity to play at the World Cup for Nigeria. I mean, you look at that growing up. Did you actually ever thought of that, like... You be playing at the World Cup, wearing the colors of Nigeria. Mm, I was dreaming of it, definitely. But then, as a kid, I don't know. There will be you will find players probably out there who always said stuff like they spoke it into existence, but they also worked hard for it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's always a kind of a thing of like affirmation. You have to speak things to existence. You have to see them before they actually happen. Um, and I think there's this saying like, if you can see it or if you can dream it, you can achieve it, which is true. Uh, I'm just one testimonial for that. There's a lot of other f- footballers in uh, in my team. I'm I'm here right now with 22 other players who had that same dream. But I can't actually remember when I said as a young boy, as a young boy, I'm gonna play in the World Cup for Nigeria. I dreamt about it, yes. And when we played in the in the streets, we were like, okay, I'm this team, I'm that team, and we played this game called World Cup. Where everybody was representing one team as a one man, and then just shut the goal, shut the ball into the goal. But yeah, that's Nigeria and Brighton defender Leon Balogun currently on loan at Wigan in the English Championship. Uh, so Stuart, there was a great excitement when he joined Brighton, but as the games went by, it was clear that he was there as cover for the two first choice centre backs. So it was disappointing for him, and good to get that loan to Wigan, I guess. Well. Leon Balogun's situation is one we've talked about before. You know, Brighton is not one of the top clubs in the Premier League, but they still have 48 professional players, including 16 defenders. So, with 11 players starting, it's not difficult to work out that you still have 37 players hoping to get on the bench. Balogun was born in Berlin, Germany, to a Nigerian father and a German mother. He's now 31, in his 12th season as a professional, but it's taken him quite a long time to establish himself. His first club was Hannover, but he only got one start with them. Then he signed for Werder Bremen and never made the starting lineup. He had three seasons in the German League 2, playing for Fortuna Dusseldorf and Darmstadt, before he finally gained a Bundesliga starting place regularly with Mainz. But he'd been a professional for seven years at that point. And Mainz were mainly in the bottom half of the German league while he was there. So when he moved to Brighton, you could say that he didn't have the strongest pedigree as a player. 
and he has simply struggled to get playing time at Brighton, making only eight appearances last season and none at all this season before he moved to Wigan, a team near the bottom of the championship. And I think you can look at his career two ways. For 12 years, he has played professional football and in the latter years especially, earned very good money. But most of his career, he has struggled to be more than a squad player. But that is the nature of English Premier League. There are probably 200 players on a good wage as squad players, but with not much realistic chance of becoming regular starters in the first team. Yeah, that's the way it is often. Sure. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, on social media this week, asking, how do you cope with disappointment? So we heard from Leon Balogun there. Didn't get much game time at Brighton. Disappointing situation, but he says he tried to adjust and to make the most of the situation and to know that things don't always go how we expect them to go. Uh, so how do you cope with disappointment? Could be talking about uh, in football, sport in general, but also the bigger picture of life in general. How do you cope with disappointment? and when things don't go the way that you hoped. You can go to our Facebook page, that's Planet Sport Football Africa, or send us a WhatsApp to plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. That's plus four four seven nine double five two three two seven eight zero. Well, this is Planet Sport Football Africa, brought to you by Passion for Sport. And still to come, Stuart, on how COVID-19 might affect the transfer market around the world. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Planet Sport FA. And you can download our app and listen to the show anytime and access past programs in our archive. To download, go to the Play Store or the Apple iTunes App Store and enter Planet Sport Football Africa. You can listen to the show too on our New Look website, that's planetsport.tv and you can read interviews with various sports stars there including Sierra Leone's Umaru Bangura, Ghana's Christian Achu and the Brazilian great Kaká. That's on our website, planetsport.tv. Let's go to social media now and uh, last week Liberia's President George Weir gave a bleak analysis on the future of African football when speaking at an online conference that I attended. Weir said the lifeblood of sports consists mainly of attendance fees and sponsorships and where these no longer exist many clubs will collapse and many leagues will close permanently on the continent. He added that health and recovery of our economies take absolute priority in the COVID-19 era. However, it is important that global funding being raised should recognise the social importance of sport. So last week we asked, do you agree that some of the global funding should include African sport? Here's Adrian Barnard. Thanks then, Steve. And on WhatsApp, we start today with Emma in Ghana, who says, Yes, I agree, because sport often serves as the basis for grooming the young ones away from social vices. And, as well, it serves as a source of income for living for many. The alternative is that should teams go bankrupt without financial help, it would cause a massive blow to the state, and especially the youth involved, says Emma. Sarja B. Conte in The Gambia shares a similar view. Yes, I agree, says Sarja, because we all know sports can't go or move in any country in Africa without money. Our players are the same. Almost the majority of them depend on their football salaries each month to help finance their families. So I support the idea of former player George Weah, the current president of Liberia. And Ricky Ngulube is in Zambia. 
Every sector of the economy in the world has been affected by the COVID-19, including football, which generates its funding through gate-takings and sponsorship, says Ricky. So, yes, the relief fund should also be used to cushion the impact that most African teams are facing as the result of this pandemic. But Ansumana Dabo in the Gambia takes a different view. No, I don't think so, because football is very expensive and the funds could be better put into our survival than football. Football could be held for a while, but no one can hold his life and say let's suspend our survival for some time. That would be difficult, says Ansumana. And Musa K. Conte, also in the Gambia, says, Yes, some of the funding should go to African clubs because they are poor, but the funding should also consider our needs too, as we are poor, and this situation is really disturbing us. Dominic Ompile in Botswana says simply, Yes, I agree that some of the funding should go to African sport. And Jesse Rando in Sierra Leone concurs. Yes, I do agree, says Jesse, because football is a one-family game. And also in agreement is Abdullah Jallo in the Gambia. Yes, indeed, says Abdullah. The global funding should prioritise the inclusion of Africa, as Africa is the most vulnerable continent on the face of the planet. Although the COVID-19 pandemic isn't that harsh in Africa, as in some parts of the world, it still has a great, if not the greatest, negative impact on Africa. If funding isn't made on African sport, I can say for sure that many clubs and associations will perish because of their weak financial backgrounds, says Abdullah. To Cameroon now, and Esunge says, Sport has proven to be a big unifier in the continent of Africa. It has done that in countries like Liberia, the Ivory Coast and Nigeria. So it's very indispensable to include sport in the global funding. Alhagi Manga in The Gambia says, I agree with President George Weah for some of the funds to be directed to African football clubs. But what has baffled me somehow is the idea of declaring some teams as champions to represent their countries in the African clubs championship while the season has not been completed. Is that a wise suggestion? asks Alhagi. And Jibril Mansurai in Sierra Leone also thinks it's a good idea. Footballers haven't been playing and their salaries have been running out as no matches means no income coming to the various clubs from either spectators or sponsorship, says Jibril. Mohamed Sana in the Gambia believes funding can help the next generation. I agree with his analysis, says Mohamed. Here in Africa, when the COVID-19 or lockdown is over, I think some clubs might be facing some financial problems. And I think global funding should include all the sporting fraternity because most of our youths have chosen football as their profession and occupation. It will not be fair if the funding did not support them. They will need this support, says Mohamed. And finally, Musa Kamara in The Gambia says, Yes, I do agree and think global funding should include African sports because it's difficult to say this, but COVID-19 is really making our life difficult in Africa. So there you are, Steve. The vast majority of our correspondents this week are agreeing with President George Weah of Liberia that COVID-19 relief funding should be spent on African sport. But the big question now is, will it actually happen? 
Well, yes, sir. Can donors be persuaded to direct money towards the rebuilding of sport in Africa? It's a worthy cause, say most listeners,、uh, but indeed, would it happen in practice? Well, South Africa has an eight million dollar relief fund for sports people and for artists.、Uh, we're trying here in Zimbabwe something similar, but there's really not much funding at all.、Uh, CAF and FIFA have given relief payments to football associations, but there's no obligation to pass on the money to leagues, to clubs, and to players. So the situation varies from country to country. Well, thanks, Adrian. Thanks to all who got in touch, and you're always free to ask us anything you like on Facebook or on WhatsApp, and we'll be happy to answer you and also to comment on any issue that you like. Now, Malang Sambu is a Gambian living in Italy. He says,、uh, Steve, I think that COVID-19 will put on hold the transfer inflation due to the financial problems that have already hit many teams. And I think whenever this pandemic is over, the rich teams and rich team owners will go for the best players. That's a good point, Stuart.、Uh, that given the economic effects of the pandemic,、uh, maybe the richer clubs will have an advantage post COVID nineteen. I think Malang has raised a very important point, and I have no doubt that he's correct. Over the past twenty years, we've seen transfer fees and wages in the Premier League and in the major leagues in Europe. Rise astronomically, but I wonder if the trend is about to come to an end. Now we talked recently about transfer fees and agreed that it was unlikely that we would see Neymar's $240 million transfer fee equaled in the near future. And again, how Paul Pogba's value seems to have fallen by about 25% since Manchester United bought him. And of course, we also noted that this may not be a bad thing. Using the example of Fred, for whom Manchester United paid seventy-six million dollars to Shakhtar Donetsk, and Fred is a good player, but he's not a world stellar player, so that was a ridiculously high fee. COVID nineteen has disrupted all football clubs in Europe, but some more than others. But you can guarantee one thing: that a hundred percent of clubs have seen their revenue in 2020 drop significantly below what they were expecting. Now I understand that the Premier League is likely to have to pay back something around 400 million dollars to TV companies because they don't think that playing 92 games, sometimes three or four a day, six days a week, will enable television to generate the amount of revenue that they would have done had the games been played during the normal football season at prime time and spaced out. And while television is the main source of income. Premier League clubs also get commercial revenue and ticket sales, and Manchester United will play five remaining home games with no spectators, and they stand to lose about twenty million dollars. So, if you put the television and commercial and ticket sales together, that's up to forty million dollars per club. So clearly, that's forty million dollars that they were expecting to have and might well have spent on buying players. Malang expressed the fear that teams with richer owners might be immune from the difficulties, but I think this is where the UEFA fair play rulings come in, and they're designed to stop that. But it is really a fascinating question, and time alone will tell whether all clubs suffer proportionately, or whether some clubs will be harder hit than others, and indeed whether clubs in some European countries are more affected than others. Steve, I don't think that this is the last time we will be thinking about the big issue that Malang has raised.
Indeed, yeah. Well, the 17th of this month is getting closer. That's the return of the English Premier League. Uh, of course, all these games will be behind closed doors with no fans. And uh, Stuart saw some interesting ways of getting the fans involved happening in Denmark. Well, Steve, we've already talked about the problems of playing in an empty stadium. And we mentioned how the German club Borussia Mönchengladbach were giving fans the chance to have a cardboard model of themselves sitting in the stand. Well, two clubs in Denmark have come up with even more creative things. ATF Aris are having a virtual crowd. They have formed a video wall with several big screens, which is effectively a giant Zoom meeting. And so there's all these fans' live pictures watching the game, and the cheers and shouts are broadcast and the stadium's loudspeakers. So the players on the pitch can look to the stand and see the screens, and they can hear the cheering. And ATF won their game on Monday 1-0, so it seems to be working. And you've heard of drive-in movies. Well, what about drive-in football? FC Midland, also in Denmark, came up with a creative way of allowing their fans to get close to the action while socially distancing. They have set up two big screens in the stadium's car parks and supporters are invited to park there, listen to the commentary on their radio while watching the game on the big screen. And they had more than 2,000 parking spaces available for this week's game. But the bad news is that the league leaders, Mitchelland, went down 1-0. So that wasn't very successful from that point of view. But great to see people trying different things. Yes, very creative of those clubs in Denmark. Thanks, Stuart. That's it for the show for this week. So from me, Steve Vickers in Harare, from Ida Waringa in Nairobi, and from Stuart Weir and Adrian Barnard in the UK, thanks a lot for listening. And Planet Sport Football Africa is a passion for sport production.